again, Medical Education Podcast listeners. This is Kevin Eva, the editor-in-chief of the journal, with the distinct pleasure today of being able to talk with a longtime friend and colleague who is now full professor at Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences down in Bethesda, Maryland. Lara Varpio is the voice that you'll hear momentarily, and we're going to talk about a paper that her team has coming out in the May 2021 issue of Medical Education entitled Attaining Full Professor, Women's and Men's Experiences in Medical Education. Lara, many of you will know, is a professional podcaster given her role at Key Lime. So I will do my best to keep up with her. But Laura, I'm glad that you've, you've come <laughs> joined Amateur Hour for, for a few minutes. Oh, Kevin, this is so not amateur. I have to tell you, I've been so excited about this invitation. Thanks for having me. No, really, it's my pleasure. Not just because of the chance to, to chat with you, but because it's such an important issue. Equity diversity is obviously right on the front and center of various radars these days. We've known forever that in academia, it's no different than in other parts of the world where certain groups have not had as much success reaching certain heights. Can I just start by asking your thoughts on medical education specifically and what you've seen in these regards that led you to think that this project was worth doing? Sure. Diversity and inclusion, equity, all of these things are such important topics. And to have the opportunity to think about the role of women in that space is really exciting. I think one of the things that really was an impetus for this project was that the statistics that come out about the representation of women in medical education in different spaces in different countries, the temptation is to think that it's a national concern. This might be a problem for us, but surely it's not a problem for somebody else. And yet when you look across the national borders, when you look across different countries, the fact of the matter is, is that women do represent well and properly over 50% of matriculants these days. And in terms of faculty, the most recent AAMC report came out in 2019, I believe, and it talked about how more than 40% of faculty are women, but barely 25% of full professor faculty are women. So there's something in there. There's got to be something, but what is it? That was a spur. Well, and, and you just alluded to the matriculant stage. So those numbers have shifted dramatically over time and have, again, not even in every country, but in the last decade or so in Canada is when we've started to see many more women come into medical school than men. What do you say to those who sort of dismiss the issue by saying they just haven't been in the system long enough to achieve those senior positions. Right, right. So, you know, it's really interesting in preparing this article and doing a little bit of the lit review that's so important. I came across two papers that were really an interesting opposition. So back in 1995, there was a report that came out about the fact that female medical educators, female physicians working in the U.S. were promoted more slowly than men. And it was a difference that wasn't explained by things like productivity or attrition rates or those sorts of things. And then some 24 years later, another paper came out in 2019 about the same gender disparity of the representation of women declining in those middle to senior ranks. So if it's over 24 years, I don't think that it's a matter of waiting for those people to get up their ranks. Something's definitely happening. Yeah. And fair to say that's the underlying goal of this particular project is trying to better uncover what's happening on those trajectories. Yeah. And to try to delve into the why. Mm -hmm. Why does this happen? What's going on in here that we're not seeing? Because it's not that there isn't a lot of research going on about the disparities that exist, right? There's a ton of really great work going on. 
It seems problematic though, that we're still having a hard time tapping that why, what is it that's within these structures that's holding us back? So that, yes, that was the goal of the study to understand that why. To do that, you made the methodological decision to focus on males and females who had achieved full professor as opposed to those who were struggling to get to that stage. Can you tell our listeners a bit about what advantage you saw to that? Sure. So there is a practical reason and then there's a philosophical reason, right? So we'll start with the practical because, you know. You don't have to whisper. It's fully legitimate. I know, but I want to whisper and I, and I feel that. <laughs> no, you raise a good point. They're going to hear it. <laughs> so the practical concern is that how do you find those people? How do you find participants who have not successfully reached a full professor? Well, then you start looking at the ranks of the associate ranks. And now, how do I frame that email? Mm-hmm. You know, I would love to hear your story about why you haven't achieved full professor yet. Oh, <laughs> that's just, a, no, I'm not going to be doing that because there's a million reasons, right? No, for practical reasons, that was never going to fly. The other part is the more philosophical piece is that by having people who have managed to get through the process, we were hoping to, and we were able to understand what were the struggles and obstacles that they had to overcome. And so in understanding those obstacles that stood in the way that they had to overcome, it was one of those things where we expected them to be able to articulate more of them. And hindsight's always 2020, right? So it's easier to see that retrospectively than when you're in the thick of things, basically going, I just, I didn't get promoted. So we felt that this would provide a really unique orientation. And it also was practically feasible. Well, and it certainly appears to have accomplished both ends. And when you talk about their capacity to speak to the barriers of facilitators, one of the things that stands out very clearly, at least in my interpretation of what you've shared, is that often similar barriers and facilitators were present for both men and women, but they were experienced differently or addressed differently or it didn't necessarily have the same impact in the long run. Is that what you consider to be one of the dominant themes? And can you unpack that a little bit for us in terms of the the real observations you made? Absolutely. And happy to unpack that. Actually, it's one of the pieces that gives me an opportunity to speak a little bit about the methods. Because one of the things that we chose to do with this research was to use narrative analysis and do a narrative-based study. And that's perhaps not an approach that's used very often or as often as I'd love to see it. I'd love to see more narrative research in our field. But We essentially just asked people, the interview protocol was one question. Tell me the story of how you got promoted. Start where you think it's relevant. Highlight the parts that you think is relevant. And now that does create, you know, the data set isn't clean, as you might expect when you have a more structured protocol, but, you know, the kernels of interesting things that people want to tell you was just the data set was so gorgeous. It was just, and I know, you know, data sets physically aren't gorgeous, but, you know, as a person who feels that data can be gorgeous, it was gorgeous data. Uh-huh. And so having those opportunities and those conversations was such a luxury to hear that full narrative. And then to understand the data, you know, I was so glad that we had chosen this approach because if we had chosen to just do a thematic analysis, which is wholly reasonable, it's a great methodology, but then we would have seen these commonalities we would have seen that they talk about needing mentors. We see that they talk about having to balance home and work. But it's when we dug into the stories, into those narratives, that you see that the experience of them are really different. So that, for instance, both male and female participants talked about the work that it would take to get promoted, the effort that was involved. But the language that was used by our male participants was a language of inevitability. I'll keep doing this. 
it will happen. It's going to be done. It's going to be fine. And that same tone was absolutely not present in the women's narratives. It was a tone of struggle. It was language around having to figure out if I can get through this labyrinth of challenges. It was not inevitable. Same thing, actually, really interesting, thinking about the way the participants talked about having family members. So, you know, male participants talked about having to care for elders and having children that needed time and attention. But that discussion, the narration of that was embedded in their narrations about their private life. It was not part of their narrations about their public or professional experiences. Whereas our female participants narrated how they're standing as a mom or as a wife or as a caregiver to an elder parent. That was part of their professional identity. And that was part of the professional discourse that surrounded them when promotion was discussed. So that private experience was embedded in and shaping their professional efforts to become promoted. So while the themes were interesting in terms of them being common, they were really important, I think, in terms of understanding the differences. Mm-hmm. And so how, in a methodology like this, do you draw comparisons? Was it a matter of putting all the male narratives beside all the female narratives? Or what do you recommend for others methodologically who want to create subsets in a data set like this? Right. So one is very carefully, right? How do we do this? <laughs> no. <laughs> so just a couple of things. One is that there are several different kinds of narrative analysis that you can engage in. There's holistic, thematic, there's structural, there's different ways. So it is very much framed by the orientation you're taking. I think one of the things that we did in our work that worked really well for us was that we tried to look at the stories as holes. And so we had the data from female participants first. We wanted to really understand that data set and hear where their inflection points are. What did they emphasize? What did they lean on? What were the things that these participants were indicating were part of their promotion journey? And then we collected the male participants after that. And so because we had done the female participants, we had a sense of what their challenges, expectations, narratives were. And so then by having the male participants, it was like bringing the two of them in conversation. So I can see that this, for instance, need for mentorship is similar but the way they're talking about it is not. So it really is one of those practices to do this kind of work. And I think to do it with justice to the data, it's about reading and rereading and observing in one data set and then observing in the next and just continually going back and forth. Because I know you've done so much work on methodological development as part of the reason I'm perseverating on some of these things, because you've you've got some useful insights to offer for people. But the other methodological aspect to this that's fairly unique in my observations has been that many people get into qualitative research and they worry about the extent to which the researchers are overlaying their own preconceptions or their perspective. Same concern should exist with quantitative research, but obviously comes up in a different way. In this instance, you actually chose to use co-authors as participants, and that could be seen as sort of reinforcing the author's views. How do you manage that balance? Right. So first of all, we have to put out there that we did this research from within a constructivist orientation, right? So we're working within those interpretivist frames of thinking about science and knowledge and data. Interestingly, there is a tradition of having the researcher be an explicit part of the data set, right? So this idea that the researcher and the interview participant co-create the knowledge that's being generated through the data set. That's a longstanding thing that we've talked about in our field for a long time, but there's a tradition of having insiders 
do research on a topic, right? So the idea is then that being an insider, it doesn't necessarily make it for better or worse data. It just makes for a completely different perspective. So as an external observer who is not an insider, right? So somebody who's distant from the topic, you will be able to see and ask and understand for certain things, but you also are limited from understanding certain things by being an insider and being, you know, understand the social phenomenon with more nuance. You can really get a different level of conversation going on with participants. You can really understand as someone who's been there, how that impacts. So in this kind of paradigm, it's not so much about bias. It's more about understanding that the kind of insights, the kind of perspectives we can gain from recognizing that we're in this space as well. First of all, that's something we should acknowledge. And second of all, that's something we should harness. So listening to the stories of my co-authors was beautiful and humbling. No doubt. And just reading about the barriers that people are overcoming is humbling as well. And unless there are particular ones you want to speak to, I think I'm going to leave some of those details for people to read about in the paper itself, because I I want to ask more about the implications and not so much about what do individuals do to overcome those barriers, but what needs to change in our systems to make it such that the barriers are less high, so to speak. Right. So, you know, that's a really great question, one that I can answer to an extent, right? So we took a feminist orientation. So what we did is we used feminist theory to help us think about this data set. And one of the theories that we leaned on comes from Kate Millett. And she talks about the power structures that exist within relationships, within the structures of our society. And one of the things that became very evident when we used that theory as a lens to understand the data set was that medical education upholds certain practices, all social structures uphold certain practices. We all do like, you know, you go to the grocery store, there are social practices that we all agree to because I don't button line because that would be embarrassing, but that's very rude, right? So just like we don't do those sorts of things when it comes to promotion or when it comes to working with others in medical education, we have social practices that we adhere to. We just uphold them. We agree to them. And One of the things this theory would suggest to us is that we recognize that there are specific ideologies built into those practices. So there are ways of thinking that because they're part of our structures, because you don't button line at the grocery store, you just don't question them. You sort of stop seeing them because they're so normal. And I think that for me was one of the big things about the data set was that we were able to see, despite in so many places, this explicit and concerted effort to create fair and equitable processes for promotion. The fact of the matter is, is that a lot of the structures that are built in there, even though they look fair and equitable and they seem to be structures that we can all agree on and we take them for granted as normal, they actually uphold a way of thinking about what it takes and who you are and things like, for instance, how many papers you should have consistently every year in order to be recognized as successful. Things like staying with time, how long it should take you to go from one position or one rank to another. These are things that we just, you know, it's part of the process that yes, there should be a time. So good luck trying to go too fast, but it's also, you know, good luck if you're going too slow, Hmm. right? So these are all pieces of the promotion and tenure structure that we just don't recognize. And I think that's one of the things that we really hope comes out of this research is that we start to 
make that which is assumed to be normal and just make that familiar strange, right? Make it a little uncomfortable to look at or just change the way we're looking at it to see what is it that we're upholding with these structures. So for instance, one of the things we could think about in terms of a very practical question is things about parenting. That is a challenge for both men and women. We all have to contend with it. But the experience of being a parent is something that we discuss in different language. We use different terms for men and for women. So one of our participants, for instance, talks about how when she was sitting on the tenure promotion committee herself, recognized that they were talking about the letters of support said, and she sits on the PTA. And there was nothing in the mail letter about how he also coaches the baseball team, for instance, right? So it's just these different things that might look really innocuous and really normal. They reflect a way of thinking. Right. So that does lead me to one more question Mm -hmm, that I feel like I shouldn't skip over, even though I felt like I might. But for the person who's listening to this, who is working in a sub-utopian system and might want to make the normal strange, but doesn't have lots of capacity to feel like they can really change the system until they achieve those higher ranks. What advice do you have for those individuals? Oh, yeah. Thank you for asking, Kevin, because that is a great question. And it's important. Honestly, one of the most important things I think coming out of this data set that I could recommend to that person is that you need to find a mentor who will mentor you through the promotion process. And especially if you are a young woman who's just starting a family or just getting into that, finding a woman in your context who has been successful, who's walked through the process at your context, because every context is a little different. So having an insider who is there to help navigate that labyrinth with you is so vital. And it's vital for men as well. It's absolutely something we should be thinking about. I hope people will find the mentor who will see them as a whole person, not just, okay, me or CV. We have to get your CV over the line. You got to get the person over the line. And that's a bit of a different way of thinking about it. Yeah, that just raises a fantastic metaphor for me. It's we very familiarly talk about how wrong it is for physicians to speak with their patients in terms of their disease. But I don't think I've heard anybody before talk about academics in terms of their CV as opposed to them as a person. Yeah. And before we wrap up, Kevin, there's one thing I absolutely have to say, because this study was such a team effort. I owe a debt of gratitude to Jen Clellan and Nancy Dudek and Debbie Yarsma and Carlin Bader-Larsen, Kathy Day, Margaret Hay and Emily Harvey. This was the epitome of a team project. In fact, there were a couple of times where I thought we should drop the effort because I kind of lost hope. And, you know, I still remember sitting with Jen and Debbie in a coffee shop and they're like, no, 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 we got this. We can do this. And I was like, oh, no. Because, you know, when you first start thinking about, oh, the data kind of look the same, they're both talking about mentors. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. But yeah, so just a great team who wouldn't, didn't give up. So just so grateful to them. Recognizing many of the names on your team, I'm not surprised to hear that. But what might be implicit or too implicit is just how international the group is. So congratulations to on you know, exploring these issues across a wide variety of nations, even though the context within those individual nations will still be quite diverse. 
So I'll just remind people who are listening that in addition to the names that Lara just mentioned, you'll find this paper under her byline as well, Lara Varvio, in the May 2021 issue of Medical Education with the title Attaining Full Professor, Women's and Men's Experiences in Medical Education. Thanks again, Lara. Oh, thanks for having me, Kevin. What a joy. Thank you.